This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In the first perspective on our program today, I want to ask a rhetorical question, but one I'm going to try to answer nonetheless, the end of traditional marriage. If one is intellectually honest about what is occurring in Western civilization, especially in the United States, one would conclude anecdotally that traditional marriage, that is a nuclear family with one man and one woman married and having children, is non-existent in major parts of our culture. Further, the effects of this social development are not positive. What was once an anecdotal observation is now supported by detailed facts resorting from sociological research. For example, I just finished reading an article by the culture editor of Veranda magazine, Kate Bullock, in the November 2000 edition of The Atlantic magazine. For me personally, it was an astonishing article to read. So in this perspective, I want to summer, summarize the salient parts of this important article and conclude with some thoughts from God's Word. First of all, a summary of the article. As the great American economy deals with the Great Recession and also with the profoundly new social arrangements emerging, it is time to embrace new ideas about romance and family, Kate Bullock says, and to acknowledge the end of traditional marriage as society's highest ideal, she concludes. Part of this cluster of new ideas that she mentions impacting marriage includes the fact of a post-boomer ideology that values emotional fulfillment above all else. And the elevation of independence, I would call that personal autonomy, over coupling as a second-wave feminist idea. They are her words. Kate Bullock quotes social historian Stephanie Kuntz on this revolution in social arrangements. Quote, we are without a doubt in the midst of an extraordinary sea change. The transformation is momentous, immensely liberating, and immensely scary. When it comes to what people actually want and expect from marriage and relationships, and how they organize their sexual and romantic lives, all the old ways have broken down. Close that quote from historian Stephanie Kuntz. What is the evidence for this astonishing conclusion that she draws? In her article, Kate Bullock cites several threads of evidence. Let me summarize them. Number one, in 1960, the median age of the first marriage in the United States was 23 for men and 20 for women. Today, it is 28 and 26. Today, a smaller proportion of American women in their early 30s are married and at any other point since the 1950s, if not earlier. There are also major attitudinal shifts about marriage. According to the Pew Research Center, a full 44% of millennials and 43% of Gen Xers think marriage is becoming obsolete. Number two, women no longer need husbands to have children, nor do they have to have children if they do not want to. Biological parenthood in a nuclear family is no longer the norm. 
In fact, today, about 40% of all children born in the United States are born to single mothers. Furthermore, gays and lesbians, both married and single, and older women are also having children by means of adoption and in vitro fertilization. These developments collectively have all shrunk the stigma against single motherhood. Finally, in 1976, the percentage of women in the early 40s who had not yet given birth has nearly doubled. Number three. The gains of the women's movement, the feminist movement, women's rights movement, have also had a significant effect on marriage. Over the past half century, women have steadily gained on and are in some ways surpassing men in education and in employment. Women are also more likely than men to go to college. In 2010, 50% of all college graduates ages 25 to 29 were female. Number four. Coupled with number three, the increase of women in all different professions in both education and employment has led to the deterioration of the male condition. They go together. They're not necessarily cause and effect. Men have been rapidly declining in income, in education attainment, and in future employment prospects relative to women. As of last year, women held 51.4% of all managerial and professional positions up from 26% in 1980. Women earned 60% of all bachelor's and master's degrees awarded in 2010, and men are more likely than women to hold only a high school diploma. In addition, nearly three-fourths of the 7.5 million jobs lost in the depths of this recession were lost by men. Most of them, economists conclude, will probably never return. A marriage based on men as the primary earners in the family, is passing into extinction. Finally, one of the major results of all this data and all this research that Bullock summarizes in her article is that American women as a whole are confronted with such a radically shrinking pool of what are traditionally considered to be marriageable men, those that are better educated and those who earn more than they do. This is what leads, secondly, to what Bullock calls in her article, crisis in gender as a movement. It is seen most profoundly in the African-American community and in what is called, and I've called it that, it's been in many different articles, but the hookup culture that you see on college campuses. An astonishing 70% of black women are unmarried, and they are more than twice as likely as white women to remain that way. Bullock's argument is that what has already occurred in the black family is beginning to occur in the white family. One example, in 2011, more than 25% of all white children are now being born out of wedlock. Regarding the college campus, recent studies confirm that where women outnumber men, as they do on the typical American college campus, the social norms against casual sex begin to weaken. The hook-up culture, as it's called, on campuses has produced college students with many sexual partners and a casual atmosphere about sex that is unprecedented in our history. Contraceptives and abortion 
remove the stigma of pregnancy, and encourage this hook-up culture. The broader effect of this revolution in sexual behavior, this crisis in gender that is really the theme of Kate Bullock's article, is this. The Census Bureau has reported that in 2010, the proportion of married households in America dropped to a record low of 48%. I want to repeat that. In 2010, the Census Bureau reported that the proportion of marriage households in America dropped to a record low of 48%. 50% of the adult population is single compared with 33% in 1950, and that portion is likely, very likely indeed, to keep growing. The median age for getting married has been rising, and for the affluent and educated, it is even higher. Last year, nearly twice as many single women bought homes as did single men. All of these statistics, all of this data, indicate a culture that is upending its social norms and its institutional structures. We are indeed in the middle of a massive sea change in terms of cultural norms, in terms of values, and especially in terms of the traditional family. Now, how do we tie all this together? When one places God's creation ordinance in Genesis 2, 18 through 25, up against his summary by Kate Bullock, it's difficult to be positive about the state of our culture. God's creation ordinance stipulates that marriage is an institution he created, he ordained. It is between a man and a woman, and it is for life, and it does have as one of its purposes procreation. What we are witnessing in America is a wholesale abandonment of this creation ordinance from God. As we are seeing and will see in increasing degrees, It is the children who suffer the most from this aberrant redefinition of marriage. Marriage is the bedrock institution of civilization, and in the United States of America especially, it is in dismal shape. In our second and final perspective on the program today, I want to do a lengthy analysis of what people are calling the age of the screen Recently, the American Academy of Pediatrics expressed deep concern about the effects of exposure to screens on children. What kinds of screens? TV screens, computer screens, monitors, iPads, smartphones, and other such devices. In fact, the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, called upon parents to place severe limits on the exposure of young children two such screens. According to the AAP, 90% of parents reported that their children under the age of two watched some form of electronic media. These children, parents also reported, watch an average of one to two hours of television a day. The report also contends that a considerable number of parents indicated that TV is very important for healthy development. That's a quote from the report. And therefore, leave the TV on virtually all waking hours. The doctors of AAP, one more time, that's the American Academy of Pediatrics, 
reject such a notion and argue instead that unstructured play, these are their words, and face time with parents produce far greater educational outcomes. Indeed, Benedict Carey, a reporter for the New York Times, indicates that the AAP makes clear that there's no such thing as an educational program on television for such young children. Now, what I want to do is summarize some of the other salient parts of this very significant report and the summary of the findings from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Let me list these off rather quickly. Number one, TV exposure around bedtime is associated with poor sleeping habits, irregular sleep schedules, which can adversely affect mood, behavior, and learning in children. Number two, this report found that by age three, almost one-third of all children have a television in their bedroom. Number three, about one year ago, the AAP argued that children and adolescents spend more time engaged in various media than they do in any other activity except sleeping. Number four, the 2010 Kaiser Foundation report suggested that children and teenagers spend more than seven hours each day engaged with various media. That means that such individuals who spend in their entire lifetime a total of seven to ten years watching television and other media. Number five, the number of American homes with televisions outnumbers the number of homes with indoor plumbing in the United States. The average American home with children has four televisions, one DVR, up to three DVD players, two CD players, two radios, two computers, and two video game units. Number six, about 70% of American teenagers have a television in their bedroom, and at least one-third of the nation's teenagers have a computer with Internet access in their bedroom. Finally, the pediatricians warn that the presence of a TV in a teenager's room is associated with higher rates of substance abuse and sexual activity. Well, what should we do with the results of this stunning report from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which I just summarized. Obviously, parents are the ones who put these devices, these screens, in the bedrooms of young children of teens. Therefore, it is up to the parents to exercise control and discipline. Permit me to suggest some observations and several guidelines. First of all, the effect on the brain of watching television is staggering. Clement Walshhauser observes that watching television produces highly altered brain waves and it, when people watch television for more than 20 minutes. It puts the brain into a totally passive condition, unaware of its surroundings and lessening the attention span. In addition, obsessive television watching has further negative effects. It demands our time. It is nearly addictive as it draws the viewer in resulting in more and more time spent in the time of, that you're in front of a television, and of course then, if you're a Christian, less time serving God, family, or others. There is no question that it also determines behavior. A national report entitled Television and Behavior was issued by the National Institutes of Health in 1982. That's a long time ago. A summary of more than 2,500 studies conducted since 1972 has demonstrated that there's overwhelming evidence of a causal link 
between children's watching television violence and their performance of violent acts. I think also this screen distorts the perception of reality. Children especially confuse real life with television life, and then they attend to adopt TV values as their own. A recent study discovered that 90% of boys surveyed would rather watch their favorite television program than spend time with their fathers. Quentin Schultz, who used to teach at Calvin College, reports, the lure of the television is strong for young boys, who especially like the aggressive characters and automobile violence of the action shows. I think also television and the screen distorts and dulls moral sensitivity. A steady diet, I'll just use examples, of soap operas, of situation comedies, of movies desensitizes and enables one to accept which, that which too many years ago we would have been unwilling to accept, in fact would have rejected. Adultery, premarital sex, homosexuality, murder, violent rage are all part of entertainment today in all of its forms on the screen, not just television. Obsessing viewing of such activities produces an acceptance and a toleration of acts that are repugnant to Almighty God. It also destroys meaningful family life. When a family spends its time in front of the television or other screens, there's significant communication occurring, but not with family members. There's no time for games or reading or music. Often, these kinds of activities are lethal to creativity and certainly to enjoying family relationships. Finally, obsessive viewing of television of all kinds of screens not only affects creative potential, it likewise produces significant negative behavioral effects. It is next to impossible to see addictive television viewing as anything but harmful and potentially, over time, destructive. Finally, that exposure to screens produces passivity and violent, prone, and irrational behavior demonstrates the need for some guidelines rooted in Scripture to help make wise decisions. Several of these guidelines include, and I'm going to summarize these, the principle of stewardship of time. Time is like any other commodity. We must decide how we will use it. This includes entertainment choices and all of the things that we do on the screens of life. The amount of time we spend does determine the value of it, and it must be governed by that amount of time. Secondly is the principle of self-control. You see that all over the Bible. One of the fruit of the Spirit, indeed, Galatians 5.23, is self-control. There's no greater test of this virtue than personal discipline in the amount of time devoted to television, movie viewing, or the screen in general. Knowing what we know about the effects, this is the only wise choice, the choice of self-control. Thirdly is the principle of moral purity. We see that in Philippians 4.8, for example. Here Paul makes clear that we must make the choice as to what we allow into our mind, allowing our minds to dwell in what is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellence, and worthy of praise. These virtues produce godly living and form the grid through which we make our entertainment choices. A steady diet 
and I mean an obsessively steady, steady diet, television, Hollywood movies, and many of the things that occur even on the computer screen violate these virtues. Number four is the principle of edification. The believer in Jesus Christ has great freedom, but with that freedom goes immense responsibility. Although we may have the freedom to participate in many forms of entertainment, many of these do not edify or build us up. A regular diet may actually tear down our faith. And then finally is the principle of God's glory, one of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. In our lives, we are to do all for God's glory. There are no exceptions to that, even entertainment choices. Well, then, what should Christians do? Entertainment choices are never easy, but in light of the above principles, let me suggest a few guidelines. Participate actively in entertainment choices. Always ask, how is this affecting me? Be a critical thinker when it comes to entertainment. Being passive is no longer acceptable. We need to be creative in choosing family entertainment. There's nothing wrong with television. It's not an evil. There's nothing wrong necessarily with a movie theater. It's the choices we make. Sometimes as families, we should maybe choose art museum, concerts, historical places, family reading times, creating alternatives to the screen. Next, read carefully and critically program descriptions, particularly those for TV and some of the movies. Make sure our children can critically think through and be wise in their own choices, and we can model that. Sometimes we spend so much money on entertainment issues, particularly all the things of the screen, the TV and movies themselves, as well as computers and the video games and all of those things. Sometimes keeping a log, how much are we really spending, helps us perhaps to exercise a bit more self-control. Even when it comes to commercials on television, and indeed now on the computer screen, I'm seeing it all over the place, critically think. Don't just stare passively. Sometimes turn it off. And then let me suggest a final piece of counsel, something I try to work at every single day of my life. Practice turning off the screen. Explain to your children why you are doing so. Let them see that when things offend or when behavior is becoming addictive, it's wise to exercise self-control. And no evidence self-control is greater than turning it off. Sometimes when our children were younger, we restricted, one, the amount of time they watched television or a particular movie, and certainly the amount of time they would spend on the computer or the amount of time they would spend on a video game. That seems wise. Let me conclude with a verse of Scripture. It's from Psalm 102, verses 2 and 3. These verses seem appropriate. I will give heed to the way of integrity, the psalmist writes. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. May the Lord give us enormous wisdom great discernment, and total understanding as we try to live honorably to the glory of God in this age of the screen. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.